Hello, and welcome to the Sermon Audio Podcast for Edgewood Church in Danville, Illinois. This week at Edgewood. Uh, This morning, now, by the way, we only have two of these left today and next week, and we're done with Acts. Can you believe we've made it through the entire book of Acts? I'm kind of excited about it. Um, Does anybody feel like you've now been through this story of the church since the beginning? Like you understand the church a little bit. I I mean, I feel I do, but I I have to be here every week, right? So, uh, you know, I'm I'm with it every single time, but uh, I... I just feel like after we're done with this, I just get the beginnings, the roots of the church so much better now. Is anybody else kind of like that? You're like, I, I'm following along, but I understand like this is the roots of the church. I also think I, I get Paul a little better, bit better. I feel like I know Paul better. Um, been with Paul since the beginning, since his conversion and since a little bit before that. Uh, this week, I'm going to read um, a story. It's Acts chapter 27, um, and I want you to just enter into it like it's a story. So I've done some things with the PowerPoint to try to make it feel a little bit more like I'm reading along with a story. Hopefully all my little things work that I've planned to get this PowerPoint to work right. Uh, I'm going to start with a map here, and this map is demonstrating Paul's journey from Jerusalem um, up to Caesarea, which is where he's been, and uh, we're going to go on from there. Now, I don't have all the words up there for you, but I want to encourage you, if you want to, you can follow along in your Bibles. If you want to, just sit back and listen to the story, pay attention to it. Think, okay, Lord, what's going on here? Uh, So just try to enter into this journey. We know that Paul's headed for Rome, right? And so there's kind of an at-last feeling because of this delay in Caesarea and all these different trials and things that he's had to go through. But now we're going to start taken off, headed to Rome. So Acts 27 verse 1 says this, And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. Embarking in a ship of Adramitium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. So we know that they're setting sail from Caesarea. The next day we put in at Sidon and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. Um, So here we have this point. So it makes it from Caesarea to Sidon. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had uh, sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. So here we have Paul's now making this journey. You like the little red dots? I'm not sure if they like that. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Sinaitis. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, uh, near which was the city of Lycia. So here we have Paul is making this journey. It's really not the right time of year to be making this. And if anybody studied this passage, you may have read different articles about this before. But here we have Paul in 
uh, Lasia. He's in a place called Fair Havens. And here I have a picture of Fair Havens, that, that little port right there. There's this bay. And you can kind of see uh, from that picture, can you kind of tell why it's called Fair Havens? I mean, it just kind of looks like this calm little bay. So much time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over. Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. Now, understand, Paul has actually been in a couple of shipwrecks already. If you read back through Acts and you read some other places in Corinthians where he describes things that he's gone through, he describes shipwrecks, plural. So Paul, in offering this, is not throwing out something like he's a nobody that doesn't know anything about sailing. He's been on some boats in his life, and he knows, he's looking around, and he's like, this is not going to go well. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said, because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in. The majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now when the wind, uh, now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the northeaster struck down from the land. And the ship was caught and could not face the wind. We gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Clauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on Sirtis, they lowered the gear. Thus, they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. Are you picturing this event? I've never been on a ship at sea. I think... John has been <laughs> I think John has been on a ship at sea in a storm, right? I like how the music department in, in our church is creating all this buzz. Uh, I'm sorry. That was, like that, was that was bad. That was sad. Um says this next on the third day. They threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I, now I urge you to take heart for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the, uh, of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship, and he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. Behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told but we must run aground on some island. A little bit scary news. Hope, right, mixed with hardship. When the 14th night had come, 
As we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land, so they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and, and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said, I'm sorry, I don't have the right one up there. Do I have this? Nope. Well, I'll read it to you. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you, have con- you continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. You're all going to make it. So eat. Refresh yourselves. And when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then all were encouraged and ate some food for themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. Some versions might say 76, but uh, the majority of old uh, texts say 276 people on the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran ran the vessel aground. The bow struck, remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for land. And the rest on the planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Now, There's so many interesting little lessons in here, but as I was wrapping up, there's actually something that's, for me, very personal about this passage, which I'm going to get to in just a minute. Uh, Something that uh, over a year ago, I was reading through this uh, before I was even studying Acts, and uh, I came across a verse here that just was super meaningful. God just directed me to it, so I'm going to get to that in a minute. But there's there's a lesson in here connected with that that has to do with this. The providence of God and the responsibility of man. I hope that as you were going through here, you could see God's providence. I mean, this, this shipwreck, this could have been a much different story. It could not have been. Uh, by the way, did anybody notice uh, that Luke was a part of this voyage? Was there anything that kind of clued you in that Luke may have been with them in this particular sea voyage? Anybody have anything stuck out? He said, we, right? So there's a couple of things that we did this and we did this. I think there's another bit of evidence here that kind of shows that Luke was there. Anybody have a guess as to what that might be? How about all the details? Did this feel very detailed to you? I mean, mentioning names, this is what happened next, 
We were throwing this overboard. The sailors tried to do this, but then Paul intervened. This is what Paul said to us. We ate together. I mean, there's all these details, and it just kind of is extra evidence that Luke was there for this voyage. I can picture him in the side, maybe even writing some of these things down as he was going. I wonder if maybe initially he was doing some editing of uh, the earlier parts that he'd done research for while he was in Caesarea. Uh, Maybe his gospel, according to Luke, that we call it now, maybe he was doing, but I think during this part of the journey, he's probably like, I can't write right now. He's probably on the side. Can you picture him just on the side, like hanging on to the edge? And and Paul, I I wonder if there's some conversations like, Paul, I know that God said we were going to make it to Rome, but are you sure, you know, are we really going to make it? I don't know about this. But here we have the providence of God carries them through this until they end up shipwrecked. Like Robinson Crusoe, I actually thought of that. I don't know if anybody's read Robinson Crusoe, but when Robinson Crusoe runs ashore, they're caught in a reef and it's Robinson Crusoe stays on the ship. He's the only one that lives and everybody that tried to abandon didn't make it. It's interesting that there's a similarity here. Everybody stayed on the ship until the last minute, and then they said, okay, let's swim to shore. But let's start off with something that I think is important to see in the middle of all of this, and this is going to lead us right into our point, and it's this. God is sovereign. Now, I was sharing this with Charity this morning, and she's not feeling good, so she couldn't make it, but I was sharing this with Charity, and she said, you may need to think about that word sovereign for a minute, and I have to agree. Sovereign for us has less meaning. We're not ruled by a sovereign, are we? Ruled by somebody that we elected. There's limitations. There's checks and balances if you study government. We're not ruled by a sovereign. So sovereignty is something that's uh, foreign to us. But I think if you've read and you can imagine a king that has full control, his word is law. That's what you can think of when you think of sovereignty. And that's what I want you to think of when you think about who God is. Listen to this verse. Isaiah, this is God speaking. He says, I am God. There is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purpose. something unique about being God. And this is one of those aspects. All of my counsel does not stand. All of my purposes are not accomplished. God is not like that. All of his counsel stands. All of his purposes, every single one of them accomplished. Even little things. Proverbs says the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. To put it in today's terms, uh, the roll of the dice can happen, but how the numbers that turn up every single time according to God's purpose. Even things that seem insignificant, not just random, but insignificant, are not two sparrows, Jesus says, sold for a penny. And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. There's something implied here bigger than just knowledge. But even the hairs on your head are all numbered. 
That's talking about knowledge, but the first part there, not, not one falls apart from the Father, not just awareness on his part. Because Jesus' purpose in sharing this is don't fear. God's in control. Even weather. Was it windy out today? <laughs> just a tad bit. It was uh, back in the back of our building. You hear our building creaking? Oh, I hear it running. Had a couple moments where I was like, okay, how sturdy did they build this thing? Even the weather. Listen to this psalm. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. This is our God. Every gust of wind, he did that. Ultimately, every snowflake, he did that. Job talks about something similar. He says he loads the thick cloud with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightning. They turn, I I like how it throws, it's his lightning, right? Right? They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands. All that he commands them on the face of the habitable world, whether for correction or or for his land or for love, he causes it to happen. This is our God. When I think about that, I always think of Jesus himself with his disciples and the storm. He's not worried. He's asleep in the bottom of the boat. They get worried and just because. He didn't have to calm that storm. I think they would have made it anyway. But what's he do? Be quiet. Seize. At his command. I thought about Jonah as well. In the book of Jonah, aside from that storm and that ship, if you read through Jonah, God commands the fish to swallow. God commands in Jonah, they're at the end. If you know Jonah, you'll know it's more than just that part of it, right? He, he commands at the end, he commands a plant to grow. It says God commanded the plant to grow, and the plant grew. It says that God commanded a worm to eat the plant, and the plant died. It was given Jonah shade. But it's interesting, it says God commanded the worm to do that. It's all in his hands. I even think about not just calamities like the loss of shade with Jonah. What about other things? Maybe physical ailments you've had. Listen to this word in Exodus. The Lord said to him, Moses, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing? Or blind, is it not I, the Lord? The Bible never shies away from God's ability and his control and his command and ultimately his responsibility for all things. I mean, think about politics. Well, surely that's not going how God said. Daniel says he changes times and seasons. He's 
speaking about God. He removes kings and sets up kings. The Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. Whoever he wants. Even after the king is in office, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will, ultimately to accomplish his purposes. Even the nations as a whole, ultimately the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Even in the violent, immoral, evil acts of people. We've seen this in Acts. Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28. Hope this rings a bell. Peter is speaking. He says, for truly in this city, Jerusalem, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, against Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, specific people, along with the Gentiles and all the peoples and the peoples of Israel, to do what? Peter says to God, through the inspiration of the Spirit, to do whatever your hand and your plan. Now, this is amazing. I hope you remember this when we studied this originally. There's a lot of implications here. It didn't just say to, to somehow figure out what you wanted to get done. It goes beyond that. To do whatever your hand and your plan. Didn't even just stop at plan. It throws in their hand. Does that not imply some intimate workings of what's happening? To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, an innocent man, Pontius Pilate being uh, an evil leader, Herod being an evil leader, the people shouting, kill him, kill him, this innocent Jesus, who is ultimately king of the world, All those evil decisions that go against God and against Christ somehow turn back around and it's according to God's hand and God's plan. Now, if I'm doing my job today correctly, by the time you're done, I hope you're going to have more questions than answers. And I hope that even now that's starting to formulate. Because when you start thinking about God's sovereign hand in all of these things, even the evil actions of people accomplishing his purpose, it gets your brain thinking. How? 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 Well, I don't want to answer that question today. That's not where I'm going. I think about this particular passage, and I, another one came to my mind of Joseph Joseph, who uh, John mentioned last week, we have no record of anything he particularly did wrong, not that he was sinless. But you get to the end of his life and his brothers are afraid because of all the evil they had done to him. And a summary statement from Joseph comes up. Joseph got it. He said this, as for you, you meant, you purposed evil. So the brothers had evil purposes, intentions. They, they weren't looking to what God wanted them to do. Evil purposes. And it, Joseph says, you meant evil against me. 
But God, and it's very important this next word, but God did what? He meant it, purposed it, what? The evil intentions of those guys. He purposed those things for, say it, good. How? I don't know. God is sovereign. Even with our own hearts. Isaiah says, go and say to this people, keep on hearing. And this may sound familiar from things that Paul has said from the time that Christ quoted this. Go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy. Blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn. God is sovereign. Man is responsible. I'm not responsible for that. Man is responsible. God is sovereign. Man is responsible. Listen to this verse in Romans. I don't have as many to back this up because I think we all know this part is true. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they, every single one of us, is who it's talking about, all of humanity, are without excuse. God was really in control of all things. Someone might say to themselves, well, how can God then judge? Where does he play into this? Listen to Paul. Paul says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. What was Pharaoh doing? What was he doing with his heart? What would, what did it say Pharaoh was doing with his heart? You might remember? Hardening his heart instead of repenting. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whoever he wills. Are the questions brewing? I think Paul knows exactly where you're going. He says this next, you will say to me, then why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Ultimately, the answer to that question is this. Who are you? See, when you read these verses like this and you just lay them all out there, notice I haven't done a whole lot of explaining. I'm just laying them out there. This is where it ends up. Who are you? Who are you to respond, to answer back? You know, when I was a kid, 
when I was a little kid, sometimes my mom, oh, she knew I was going for her. Sometimes my mom would tell me something. And, well, there's several little things she said. One of my favorites was, there's no yabbits in this house. You know, you know what a yabbit is? Yeah, but, yeah, we don't have those. No yabbits in this house. There wasn't talking back in the house. That didn't happen. In fact, the three of us kids, and Ashley knows this all too well, when it happened and you accidentally did talk back, there was immediate... That happened sometimes when mom wasn't even in the room. Because I knew. Somehow she knew. We were talking back to her. She could call us from the other room. Come in here right now. And I'm thinking I'm right in the middle of the most important part of my Batman cartoon. The Joker's about ready to get away. What's going to happen? Get in here now. If I said, but can I wait till the... Oh my goodness. That's nothing. Who are you to answer back to God? If God says this is how it is, ought we not to say, okay? Now, as I've gotten older, there's been times where my mom has been willing to explain to me her purposes and her plans. But as a child, not always the case. Sometimes it was, I'm the boss. She finished that with, you're nothing, by the way. Uh, I, she loved me. Um, I, right? It, there wasn't time to explain. Sometimes, there, sometimes that's how it is. You have a little one reaching for the pot on the stove, and you say, don't touch that. Do you have time to explain? No. What do you need? Obedience. Why? Because you love. And you teach that all along, even if it is just Batman. God as well, our response to him ought to be, you're God, I'm not. If you say that's how it is, I say okay. If I say I don't get it, that does not give us the right to answer back to God and say, I don't like this. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why'd you make me like this? You picture the potter now, the illustration that, that Paul's giving of the potter with the clay, right? Making it the way he wants to make it. And you imagine that pot go, I don't like how you're doing this, right? <laughs> New clay. That's what I would do. Has not the potter... No right over the clay. To make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. Can't he fashion it however he sees fit for his purposes? Now let's come full circle back to our story. The first time I read this particular story, I really entered into Paul's situation and I started to realize that there's so much about what Paul's doing on this ship that reminds me of my role as a pastor. 
Okay? So we come back to this, this idea of pastoral ministry. Sometimes I feel like all around me, all of you, me, we're in this storm of life. Anybody ever feel that way? Like life is a storm? Not life is a calmness, but life is a storm. Like whatever is going on. Man, it's a, and that's what happens. I think it specifically happens a lot of times when people come to church because, they, you know, sometimes if things are, seem like they're going smooth, some people don't come to church. But then what happens when the storm comes? You got people that, that they weren't going to step foot in church. They do because they're like, I need God, right? Because this life is a storm. Sometimes I feel that way, like life is a storm. And as I preach, right, and with my little crew of sailors, Actually, it's kind of like Paul's little ship, right? We got all the sailors were on there. We got some passengers. We got some prisoners. We got some, you know, centurions, right? We got all kinds of different people in here. So Paul, has got all these people on the ship. And sometimes I feel like as a pastor, I'm up here going, preaching, God will save you. I know there's a storm and the ship might sink. I wish I could take that part out sometimes. God will save you in the end. Reminds me of Paul saying to his people, yet now I urge you to take heart. This is verse 22. I urge you to take heart. There will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. God is in control is what he's saying. God will save you. This storm's nothing to God. At the same time that I'm saying that God will save us, I will add, you got to stay on the ship. Now, I'm a logical person. Paul prophesied that all life, not one life would be lost. Right? Remember when he said that earlier on? When, the, when some of the sailors are getting anxious about it and they lower over a boat, pretend like they're lowering over an anchor, but they lower the lifeboat and they're going to get on and try to escape. Paul comes by and do you remember what he said? He said, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Well, that's interesting. So I start, my brain, my brain starts going, I go, well, so if they would have got off with somebody, would they have died? Would the rest of the people, but Paul had already prophesied they would live and they do. They all live. The people stayed on the ship too, right? That is precisely how I feel when I preach. When I look out at all of you, this is precisely how I feel when I preach. God can save you. Many of you, I genuinely believe he will. There's been some of you that I had my doubts for a while, but you've come around and I go, man, God's saving people. God will save you. As a preacher, I get up here and what do I say? You got to stay in the ship. You got to stay in the ship. You got to go to church. You got to read your Bible. You got to do this. You got to keep trusting. You got to keep believing. You got to do, do these things. And it starts to feel like some of it depends on you, doesn't it? It doesn't. Because we know God's in control. But I'm okay with you feeling a little measure of that responsibility. You see how it works, how it ties together? God will save you, but you got to stay on the ship. What if I don't stay on the ship? Don't ask that question. <laughs> Just stay on the ship and be thankful that God can save you. But what if we don't? No, don't even worry about it. Stay on the ship. Keep at it. 
Keep reading your Bible. Keep coming to church. Be here. Be a part of it. Dig in to God's word and God's truth. Study it. Read it. Learn it. Grow. Feel a measure of responsibility. Like somehow if you abandon this, you won't be saved from the storm. God will save you. Stay on the ship. Stay on the ship. When I first ran across this, I updated my, all of my devices had the same background for over a year. I want to share it with you. So I changed all my, found a picture of a storm and put that verse on there, Acts 27, uh, 24b. It was at a time where I was feeling a little dejected. You guys know I feel that way sometimes. I feel that I get I get down pretty easy actually, to be honest with you. And I feel that way sometimes because I'm gonna be honest, I I feel like and I'm not saying this for any other reason except I'm just sharing my heart with you. There are times I feel like some of those typical pastoral things that some people think you, you to be a good pastor, you should be good at these things. I, I don't feel very good at those things like visiting and doing all this stuff and getting out there. And I feel like I'm overworked all the time with school and this. And I'm always feeling like I'm coming up short in a lot of these areas. And I can remember at that time, I was feeling a real wave of that. Like I just, and there's people that I knew, like, I wish I could get out to them, reach them and do some more with them. And sometimes I just didn't know what to do. And I'm, oh. I came across this and it was almost it's like it jumped out of the Bible and right in my face. And I absolutely believe there's truth to this. And I don't get sentimental or sappy very often, but I'm going to tell you right now, we are going to step foot on some heavenly shores someday. Right? And I believe that God has granted all those that say, I'm going to sail with Matt in this boat called Edgewood. And we're going to step on a heavenly shore someday, saved from this earth and from this storm. I believe that. All of you that have chosen to sail with me in this thing that we're doing together, I'm looking around at you. We're going we're gonna to step foot. I think we'll have a little reunion at some point. Let's have a little Edgewood thing together. Sit down, and we're going to look at each other and we go, we made it. God saved us. We made it. We're here. The ship sank. <laughs> we were swimming at the end. We threw all our cargo overboard. We didn't get to keep anything, but we made it with our souls intact, and we're here on the heavenly shores. We're getting ready to see the king. So I cling to this verse. I'm encouraged when you come and you're here and you're apart because I, I think about this verse. I think God has granted you, all those who sail with you. And I think of you as people that are sailing with me through life. So I hope that this verse is meaningful to you. It's meaningful to me. God has granted you all those who sail with you. I hope that whatever your storm is that you're going through, that you hear my words today. Because like Paul, and like every week, at some point, ultimately, I feel like what I'm saying is, God can save you, but stay on the ship. 
That's what I feel like as a pastor. Pretty much every week, I feel like that's what I'm saying to you. God can save you, but stay on the ship. Don't get off the ship. You got to stay on the ship. Keep at it. He's worth it. God will save you. Stay on the ship. Don't abandon it. Sail with me. Step foot with me on those heavenly shores when we've been faithful together to the end. And I'll greet you. We'll say we made it.